morning. morning. How are you? Man, you awake? No? You literally said no. That is unbelievable. Well, I got a nice uh, deep voice for you this morning, so if you're close to not being awake, I'll put you asleep this morning. You know, I'll do a little Barry White uh, for you. Man, it is a joy to get to be with you this morning, uh, Daylight Savings Morning. Proud of you for waking up, getting here. Uh, and can we just give those who set up this morning a round of applause? Thank you. It is no easy thing to get up on a Sunday morning and... Uh, and set up, let alone have to do it an hour earlier than you're used to. So thank you all for doing that. Uh, we're in a series called Simply Jesus, a four-part series. This is part two. If you missed the first part, I'd encourage you go back and listen to it. You can find it at awakeningchurch.com. And we're simply asking this question. Who do we say Jesus is? Uh, we're going to ask this question for four weeks and unpack it because at some point we have to ask this question if we're thoughtful human beings, not, not just thoughtful Christians, not just thoughtful, you know, followers of Jesus or thoughtful people who are spiritual, but if we're human and we have a breath on this planet and we're awake... We have to ask this question because there's no other figure in all of human history that has had a significant of impact as Jesus. I mean, if we just kind of zoom the lens back a little bit and think about this, that this carpenter turned rabbi from this obscure place of Nazareth that wasn't anywhere close to the, the center of world powers of its day, who lived over 2,000 years ago. And yet, billions of people, about 2 billion people, are gathering worldwide to celebrate this carpenter turned rabbi who died a Roman crucifixion. Uh, we have to ask that question who is this man? You know, and that he has had such an impact. And just think about our own culture. He, Jesus is in the movies. He's in, we mentioned uh, last time, he's in multiple cartoons like The Simpsons, South Park, Family Guy. We use his name as a cuss word, you know. It, you know, Jesus Christ is, if you hit your thumb, you don't have to be a follower of Jesus. You use his name when things go bad, and you maybe even call on his name when things go bad, and you don't necessarily believe in him. We don't do that with any other figure. You don't do that with Buddha. You don't go, oh, Buddha, you know. Uh, or Muhammad, you know. Who is this man that we even have marked history by him? We live in the year 2015 A.D., Anno Domini, year of our Lord. 
And, and yet the reality is, is even every major world religion has an answer to this question, who is this man? We talked about it last week or two weeks ago that, you know, Hinduism would say he's maybe one of many gods or maybe he just entered into the, the enlightenment existence and that's what Buddhism would say as well or Islam, that he was a prophet endowed with special gifts. Pop culture say he's a good man, lived a virtuous life. In fact, I find it interesting in pop culture, he pops up everywhere. You know, I found this. I got the Jesus bobblehead doll right there. It really bobbles well, doesn't it? There you go. Got this right here. This is from the movie Dogma. You, I don't know if you ever saw that, but you, I don't know if you can see. It's Jesus giving two thumbs up. It's Buddy Christ on it. It says this. Um, hang, hang on. I had it. Where does it say it? It says something. <laughs> it had this really good writing about it. Oh, well. Oh, oh here he is. He's happy. He's scrappy. He's the son of God. There you go. You go. You got this. Um, for those who, any Sharks fans in here? Anyone? Any, uh, anyone? I mean, I know it's hard to be a Sharks fan right now. But uh, then I found this as well. Uh, this is a Jesus t-shirt, and he's the goalie. And uh, Jesus saves there. Right there. Hang on. Let's get this right here. There you go. And then, and then finally, if you're at the Sharks game, you can drink with your Jesus cup to keep things cool. Now, I got to be honest, this stuff kind of makes me want to throw up. But at some point, we got to honestly ask who is this man? That 2,000 years later, we have bobbleheads and action figures and t-shirts that are being made about this man. Who is he and what did he do that so marked human history? Who do you say I am? Is a conversation that Jesus and his disciples were having uh, on a trip. We'll call it a work trip, if you will. And they're traveling up to this town of Caesarea Philippi. It's the hub in their area of, of Roman power, of Roman influence, and of Roman worship, especially the worship of Caesar. The imperial uh, cult was uh, in full force in that day, and they would worship their Caesar as God. And as they're headed up to this place that held one of many temples in uh, the Roman province, but specifically in this area of Caesar, Jesus turns and asks that very question to his disciples. And he says, who do you say I am? But he starts back just a little bit and says to him, who do other people say I am? And, and everyone had an opinion about who he was. And some thought he might have been John the Baptist come to life, some a prophet, some uh, Elijah. And then Peter has this brilliant moment this absolute moment of clarity where he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. That's not his last name, by the way. That, that's a title, that he is literally the anointed one, the son of the living God, the, the, the long-awaited king. 
That's who you are. Think about what that meant, saying you are the king as you're headed up to the place where they're going to worship the king, the ruling emperor of the day. This was treason. This was an act of treason. Now, we said last week that there's one thing that we cannot say about who we say Jesus is in our culture. That Jesus actually has taken that off the table. That one thing is, is something we so often say all the time, and it's in our culture, and, it, and it, this is the reason why Je- I just felt weird touching his head. This is the we- reason why Jesus is so widely revered, and yet at the same time the church is so widely hated, is people oftentimes have a very good view of Jesus and would say Jesus is a good man, and yet he has taken that off the table, not by his life, because he lived a good and virtuous life, not by his teachings. His teachings have revolutionized our world, our sense of ethics, our, our, the reality that we have uh, hospitals and clinics are because of straight from his teachings, but because of his claims that he claimed to be God. And here's what we know. If anyone today claimed to be God, we'd call them what? Help me out, come on. Crazy. Yeah. And yet people are still following this Jesus. And we at some point have to ask the question, well, why? Why are so many people still following this man who lived 2,000 years ago who made outrageous claims that today we would say are absolutely absurd. Why? Well, at some point, we got to ask, did he ever back up his claims? It reminds me, my kids are small, uh, and they're in school, and they come back with all these amazing stories, all these incredible stories about their other friends who, whose dads, you know, are endowed with these mighty powers, you know, and who are related to all these, you know, kings of old. You ever remember that, like in, uh, in grade school, where you'd make these big claims, oh, my dad can beat up your dad, and, uh, you know, I'm related to George Washington. You remember anybody do that? I mean, my kids do that. Don't look at me with a blank face. All right, thank you. Right? Now, it's easy. It is easy to claim just about anything. But it's hard to back it up. And in fact, as we see next in the text, we're going to see Jesus bring into focus, hey, I've made these big claims that I'm not just a good man, but I'm the God man. I'm, just not a, I'm not just a prophet. I am actually God in human flesh come to bring about salvation for all of humanity. And I've made some big claims, and unless I back them up, that's all they are, empty words. If you got your Bibles, would you open them up to uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 31? Peter, like we just said, just had this incredible like revelation, this moment where he declared, you are the Messiah. 
And it's this like moment where I think Peter's feeling pretty good about himself, you know? He's like going, all right, I'm, I'm you know, he's like, I, I did right. And, you know, Jesus affirmed it. He says, you're right. And now Jesus has this big twist in their understanding because their understanding of the Messiah is one who's anointed king, who's going to bring restoration of Israel, is going to bring dominance over every other kingdom in the world and bring uh, Israel back to the center point of all of humanity. And so they're thinking Jesus is coming as this political ruler and Jesus has to shape or shift their understanding of who he is. Is no, 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 no. I've come for something far greater. I've come for all of humanity. And I've come to bring about a freedom that is way greater because it starts all the way in the heart. And so he begins to shift their understanding of what the Messiah is. Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, now circle this word, must. The Son of Man, this Messiah, this King, they're on their way. Kings in that day are worshipped. They're on their way to Caesarea Philippi. They're on the way to the center of power. In their mind, they got the King who's all-powerful with them, and they are going about to hear his grand plan for bringing about his kingdom. And he says it this way. Here's how my kingdom is going to come on this planet. The Son of Man must suffer. Time out, time out. No, no, no. One God, that's that's a pretty bad plan. Suffers not, that's not part of the equation, especially in America. We hate to suffer. We don't want to suffer. And he says, It's not like I'm going to suffer. It's not like something that's going to happen. I must suffer. I voluntarily choose to put my life in the place of harm and pain because that is what's going to bring about the plan of God. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. Man, we hate to be rejected in our culture, don't we? I mean, it's just like, that's almost, that's like the greatest persecution in Christianity for America. While other people are literally being persecuted, can't gather out for us, don't reject me. Don't, don't reject me. Don't, don't hurt me. Don't say anything bad about me. Oh, you said something mean on me, about me on Facebook. Oh, and that's, and Jesus said, by the way, I have to suffer, and I have to be rejected by the elders, chief priests, the teachers of the law, and then I, in a circle this word, must again, must be killed. And after three days, rise again. And I love how verse 32 says this. He spoke plainly about this. He spoke bluntly about this. He didn't want them to misunderstand the plan. And Peter took him aside. Now notice this. And he rebuked him. That word rebuke is the same word that Jesus uses when he rebukes demons. And Peter, high, you know, on his high horse, is going like, man, I got it right, and so now I'm going to be your counselor, Jesus. And many scholars think, as they're walking, uh, this is probably how it unfolded, uh, is in that day, your rabbi walked in front of you, your disciples walked behind you. And so many people believe that Peter, in this moment, as he's teaching, as he's talking, and they're following their master, and they always followed behind Jesus, that Peter stepped out of line and came up and 
talked to Jesus right up next to him, uh, superimposing his authority on Jesus in that day. And so Jesus responds back, and he doesn't just address Peter in his cockiness. He, re- he addresses the, all the disciples and turned and looked at the disciples. He rebuked Peter, and man, this is big time right here. Get behind me, Satan. Man, you, you stepped out of line. Somehow you think you can inform me about God's will and God's plan. You've stepped all the way up to me and beginning to tell God what is best. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely the con- human concerns. Human concerns. Fame. I mean, the disciples thought, okay, hey, we're going to get uh, political power, influence, position, authority, concerns of God, salvation for all of humanity. Now, when we ask this question, who do we say Jesus is, off the table last week, right, is that he was a good man because he made these big claims. He made claims to be God. Anyone can make a claim. But whether we back it up or not determines whether we really are who we said we are. Jesus claimed to be God. In fact, he predicted it. He said the Son of Man must suffer, must die, and then rise again. How did Jesus prove that his claims were true? Now, this is so important, and we miss this all the time. At the center of Christianity, and this might offend some of you, is not a sacred text. At the very core of Christianity is not a sacred text, is not a a philosophy of life, is, is not any of those sort of things. At the center of Christianity is a historical event. And so if you want to judge whether Christianity or, follow, or Jesus is really who he says he is, you don't have to wade through all his teachings, although that would be very good. You need to look and examine one historical event and evaluate the evidence. See, let's, let's take a moment and just simply examine the evidence that Jesus predicted and his followers proclaimed to be true. First evidence here, examining the evidence. There's five historical facts. Now, what you need to know about all five of these, these are widely held among all scholars, secular, uh, Bible-believing, atheist, skeptics across the board. In fact, I got many quotes from those who uh, do not believe in Jesus, but these are five facts that are widely held in, this, uh, in the scholarly community. First fact, Jesus was killed by Roman, uh, Roman crucifixion and buried in a tomb. Uh, we have it in biblical sources. Uh, extra biblical sources corroborate that. Uh, mentioned uh, two weeks ago, the Jewish historian Josephus, he writes about Jesus being executed. The Roman historian Tacitus, even the Jewish Talmud talks about the execution of Jesus, and modern scholars agree. Uh, James Tabor, the chair of religious studies at uh, UNC, skeptic, not a believer, writes this. I think we need have no doubt that given Jesus' execution by Roman crucifixion, he was truly dead. In fact, the Romans were experts in killing people. They, they, made, it, uh, they, they made it an art form. 
They loved and figured out all kinds of ways to torture and kill people. They enjoyed it immensely. And the scholars agree, Jesus was killed and then buried in a tomb. Fact number two, the tomb was empty. As followers of Jesus, we believe that he rose again from the dead, that Jesus is not dead and wasn't a man long ago, but he's indeed alive right now in this moment, that he came back to life and he is the reigning Lord over all the universe. And so let's just call that, for those who are skeptical, the resurrection hypothesis, okay? Let's look at some other hypotheses about this. Alternative theories. First, some have purported the uh, hallucination theory. The theory is that uh, his disciples and his followers all had mass hallucinations and s- that they saw Jesus. Uh, and in clinical studies, there's never been reported in past or present any type of mass hallucination where they all saw the same thing. Uh, and at the same time, so this would be the only occurrence in all of human history, and at the same time, it doesn't account for the body. See, the tomb was empty. We got to actually deal with that. What happened with the body? Another theory, the witnesses went to the wrong tomb. I could understand that. Absolutely. You know, you're, you're, you're like um, really sad and torn up about it. You're crying. You go to the wrong tomb. But here's the problem. Someone could have went to the right tomb. In fact, there was guards at the tomb. They, the Jewish leaders, the Roman government, they all had cake on their face because of this incident. All they had to do was produce the body to squelch this movement that was upturning not only Judaism, but the, the Roman culture and the Roman government as well. Third theory is the swoon theory. This one's kind of fun. Uh, the swoon theory is simply that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. You know, I mean, the... the what is it, 99 lashes of a cattail that he got on his back, which many people died just in that process. And then he had a, a stake through his wrist and this wrist and right here and hung for hours. Most often in Roman crucifixion, you didn't die uh, because you bled out. You died because you su- uh, suffocated, because as you hung down, you could not get your breath. But, but then off, also then he got a spear in his side, and somehow he survived all of that, okay? Now, listen, because this is a great theory. Some people really buy into this. <laughs> somehow, then he's taken back to the tomb. He's wrapped in traditional garments, which is spices and wrap. I mean, almost mummified. So he is all wrapped up. In the cool of the tomb, he's refreshed and awakened and realizes, I'm not dead, And so then breaks free of his mummification there, rolls a two-ton boulder out of the way, you know, um, Jack Bowers, Roman guards, and then comes bloodied, bruised, and battered to his disciples and says, I'm alive. That's the swoon theory. That takes a whole lot of faith, by the way. The last theory, the tomb was empty, is the disciples stole the body. In fact, this circulated around even in Jesus' day. Uh, And I have really good reason why I do not believe that happened. 
But think about this. Disciples who were cowards, disciples who denied Jesus, who doubted him, who deserted him in his time of need after he died and the movement is dead, would they suddenly have this, oh, I'm going to be courageous now. I'm suddenly going to stand up for everything here. I mean, they weren't even very good soldiers. Think about this. When Jesus... When Jesus was, uh, you know, uh, being taken away, Peter is the only one who kind of stood up. He pulls out his sword and he aims for the guard. He gets his ear. No one aims for the ear. <laughs> you know, that's how bad of a soldier Peter is. You know, he, no one aims for the ear. And so all of a sudden, these, these disciples had the courage and, and, and be able to step up and do that. William Wand of Oxford University says, all strictly historical evidence we have is in favor of the empty tomb. And those scholars who reject it ought to recognize that they do so on some other ground than that of scientific history. Examining five historical facts. First one, Jesus was killed, placed in a tomb. Second one, the tomb was empty. Third fact, the disciples believed Jesus rose and appeared to him. Now, I'm not saying that they saw him. For those of us skeptics, they believed it. In fact, one of the earliest known uh, mantras or hymns of the disciples that was written down just uh, literally years after his, um, when he rose again from the dead was this that the Apostle Paul wrote, For what I receive, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. The disciples believed with all their heart that they saw Jesus and that he appeared to him. In fact, even Jared Ludeman, German New Testament scholar who is an atheist, writes this, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Now, I want you to note that Ludeman believes that the disciples had visions of Jesus, not the physical appearance of him. Five facts. The disciples believed it. And we can't deny this, the transformation of the disciples. Moving from cowards to courage. Think about this. The explosion of the church. The first 300 years, it wasn't until the 4th century A.D. that there was ever a church building. The first 300 years of the church, the church was intensely persecuted and killed. 300 years, there was no building, there was no system like a structure and all these sort of things. In those 300 years, the church exploded, and it began in Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified and killed. And at the center of Christianity, at the center of Christianity is the historical events of his resurrection in the place where he was killed, in the place where everyone saw him die, in the place where everyone could verify whether it really happened or not, is the center of where the church began. And then it's unbelievable that the disciples would knowingly die for a lie. Think about it. If the disciples actually stole his body, it, 
And just the reality that Christianity has purported this incredible moral ethic that Jesus lived out, this, this, this unheard standard of loving people. And the disciples went on to teach that. Not only would they be massive hypocrites, but every single follower of Jesus, every single disciple died, was killed, was martyred for their faith. Except for John, who was uh, exiled on Patmos and died in exile. Peter was crucified. James killed by the sword. Thomas killed by a spear. James, the son of Alphaeus, crucified. Simon crucified. Andrew crucified. John, natural death. There you go. Matthew killed by the sword. And Thaddeus killed by arrows. It's unbelievable that the disciples would knowingly die for a lie. Now, there's people that will die for lies. They just don't know their lies. But to go, you know what? I've been purporting this thing, and all of them say that. See, there's five historical facts that we can look at that scholars agree on. Whether secular or biblical, whether theist or atheist. And this is what's so powerful, I think, about the Christian um, message, is, is that it is so simple that you can examine the evidence before you even get into all of um, the teachings. And you just go, man, if Jesus is who he says he is, and if he did what he said he did, then what he said must be true. If he is who he says he is, he said he made this big claim, he's God. And if he did what he said he did, he made this big claim that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and die and after three days rise again. If he did that, if he did that, then everything else that he said is verified and true and trustworthy. The the center point or the fulcrum of the Christian life hinges on Jesus' resurrection and nothing else. And for those who are wrestling, those who are skeptics, those who are, are, are struggling with, I'm not really sure, and all this sort of thing, and isn't every way, you know, you choose your own way. Well, I'll tell you what. Jesus made some outrageous claims, but if he backed them up, then he is God himself. And we see, we see then not just the transformation of the disciples, but the conversion of skeptics. This is powerful. In that day, the Apostle Paul, and we talked a bit about the Apostle Paul last week as well, he he was educated with one of the greatest educations that, that he could, could get. His place where he lived, uh, Saul of Tarsus was his hometown, was, was the home of Stoic philosophy. He, he studied under Gamamil, one of the greatest minds of his day. He was the rich, elite, powerful. He would even call himself a Pharisee of Pharisee. And he began to persecute with great intentionality and intensity the Christians and kill them. And this Paul had a Jesus encounter where he then buys in that Jesus not only died but came back to life and as a result gave his life for this 
Jesus. And then we see, we talked about a few weeks ago, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who didn't believe Jesus until after the resurrection, by the way. Note C.S. Lewis, author of Chronicles of Narnia, and we've seen those movies in Mere Christianity, started out as an atheist, began to examine the evidence, gave his life to Jesus. There are so many people, by the way, who have set out to disprove Christianity, who are bright, intellectual, astute people. Uh, Think about this. Simon Greenleaf, he's a professor of law at Harvard University, uh, set out to disprove Christianity. He's the one who helped found the Harvard uh, Harvard School of Law and in the process became a follower of Jesus. Malcolm Gladwell, author, speaker, journalist, I've read a lot of his books and some of you had, in the process gave his life to Jesus. Lee Strobel, a journalist who wrote The Case for Christ, set out to disprove Christianity in the process, examined the evidence and said, the only logical conclusion is that indeed he is who he says he is. He did what he said he did, and so I must give my life. I was thinking of uh, this gal, Dr. Rosia um, Butterfield. She was a tenured professor at Syracuse. She writes this. As a leftist lesbian professor, I despised Christians. Then somehow I became one. And smart, brilliant mind who set out and was frustrated by these Christians in her class to disprove Christianity. And one pastor wrote a kind question, uh, letter to her and began to just ask some of the thoughtful questions. And she began to examine the evidence for herself. And as a result, is a follower of Jesus. There's five historical things that we see. Jesus was killed by Roman crucifixion, buried in a tomb. The tomb is empty, and we got to deal with that. The explosion of the church and the disciples believed that they saw him, their transformation, and the conversion of skeptics. And at some point, we have to deal with that. Either he just made big claims or he backed them up. When we ask this question, who do you say I am? He's taken off the table. He can't be a good man. But did he prove, did he prove, did he show that he indeed is the God man? And he made big claims like this. I am the way. I am the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He made big claims like this. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will not die. And if he indeed came back to life as he said he did and as the evidence I believe shows he did, then you can trust what he said. Now, he didn't, he didn't just end with the disciples there. The application. The application is if Jesus did rise from the dead, if this is true, I want to give a strong call for those of us who in this room would say we're followers of Jesus. Okay? 
I, I just want to call it out because we left off in the passage where Jesus rebukes Peter. And he says, you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but the concerns of man. And here's what I'd say. Maybe uh, we'll start gently. I think so oftentimes we have the concerns of man in our fellowship of Jesus. And we, like Peter, walk up to the front and begin to advise Jesus about how it's supposed to work instead of following Jesus wherever he goes. Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever, notice, blanket, open invitation. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Say no to you. Now, now let me just explain this real quick. You cannot love someone else fully unless you deny yourself wholly. In fact, Gandhi would say it this way. Yeah, we're going to quote Gandhi in church. Gandhi wrote this about Jesus. A man who was completely innocent offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies, became the ransom for the world. It was a perfect act. Mothers understand this. The minute you have a baby, you have to deny yourself and your self-freedom because you have the most dependent little being on the face of the planet relying on you. And he says, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross. I, I just, it, it hits me so afresh. This was before the cross. They're in a Roman colony. They've seen thousands of executions. They've watched their friends and other people walk the walk as they carry their cross to be executed by the Roman imposing government. This is before Jesus ever walks that walk. And he says, if you want to follow me, you have to say no to yourself. And yes to shame. Yes to rejection. And follow me. And follow me. And here he gives the reason why. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And how many times have you seen that to be true? That people who live for themselves ultimately destroy themselves, don't they? He says whoever, whoever, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. Then he gives this explanation. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Wouldn't it be amazing if in America Christians stopped living for the temporal and for eternity? What might change in our workplaces, in our communities, and our friends when we realize, you know, all the masses that we build around us, all the comfort, and all the things that are creating apathy in our heart, if we just simply said, you know what, 
We have a God who visited the planet in time-space history, took on flesh, died in my place, made some really big claims, but then backed them up and came back to life. And we said, he is Lord, and he is God, and I'm following him. And what good is it for me? What good is it for me to gain the whole world and yet lose in the end? And he has this strong warning. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous, sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. And we have, we have Christians dying around the world, being beheaded. And in America, it, it is one of those things. We, we shudder to even say the name of Jesus, to, to read our Bibles in public. What is that? This bull. Of a God who came, who died for you and for me. And somehow, somehow we've simply turned Jesus into someone who just meets our need. See, followers of Jesus simply follow Jesus. That's it. Wherever he goes, whatever he says, we don't walk up to the front of the line and advise him. You are God and there is no other. And if you came back to life, then what you said is true. And so I give my life to you. For some in this room, you're a follower of Jesus and yet you've been following your own way. And if I can just be so bold, it's just simply, in this moment, would you repent? Would you recognize that you've walked up and you're advising Jesus instead of following his direction? And go, in this moment, God, I give my life to you. I'm going to follow you. You lead. You lead. You lead, I'll follow. Wherever you say, I'll go. By the way, that's how the early church exploded. That's how the movement began. Because his followers took literally his word to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. His followers took literally his word that, that to do anything for the sick or the hurting was, was to do it for Jesus himself. His followers simply took him at his word and then lived it out. And it is time for the church in America and time for this church here for us to do the same. Followers of Jesus simply follow Jesus. And others in this room, you've been on the fence. You've been wrestling with God. And it's time. It's time for you to come to Jesus. It's time for you to give your life. You've, you've wrestled with all the intellectual side. You've gone through all these different things. And it's time for you simply to go... I've never made a personal commitment 
I've never given my life, and I'm still living it for myself, and it's not working out, and you just simply need to step into a relationship with the God who loves you, who gave his life for you, who you can examine, is it true? And this morning, today is the day for you to step into a relationship with the God of the universe. And I'm just simply going to pray. And if you're in that place, there's nothing magical about the prayer, but would you, would you simply repeat after me? It's the honest, sincere longing of your heart. God, I'm tired of doing life my way. I believe you are not just a good man, but you indeed are the God man. And I need a Savior. I believe you came for me, died for me, and rose back to life, proving you are who you said you are. God, would you come into my life and make me new? I give you my life. Won't you give me yours? And if you just prayed that prayer, would you just raise your hand for me just so I can pray for you if anyone here did that. Amen. Anybody else? God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you are a king. Thank you that you are not a king who lords it over us, but you're a king who loved us to the cross. We give our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen.